Chapter 8, Part 1 of U.S. Marine Operations in Korea, 1950-1953, Volume 2, The Inchon Seoul Operation, by Lynn Montross and Nicholas Canzona. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On to Kimpo. On Sunday morning, D plus 2, General Smith was directed as Landing Force Commander to reestablish civil government in Incheon. Although parts of the Korean seaport had been burned or battered into rubble, thousands of refugees were returning to the ruins of their homes after having fled during the bombardments. The KMC regiment, operating under the control of RCT-5, had been given the task of screening the remaining inhabitants for their loyalty. No fault could have been found with the thoroughness of these Korean allies who were perhaps inclined to be too zealous when they suspected subversion. General Smith concluded that the best procedure was to find loyal Korean officials and uphold their authority. He consulted Rear Admiral Son Won Yil, the ROC Chief of Naval Operations, and learned that the former mayor of Incheon had fled during the original NKPA invasion and never returned. Admiral Son vouched for the loyalty of one of the political prisoners, Pyongyang Moon, who had been the losing candidate for the mayorality in the last election. The Marine General decided to install him as Incheon's chief executive and issued a proclamation to that effect in Korean as well as English. Induction ceremonies were held on the morning of 18 September on the portico of the City Hall, a once imposing edifice which bore the scars of war. About 700 prominent citizens attended as the Marine interpreter led in singing the Korean national anthem. After the proclamation had been read in both languages, General Smith made a few remarks and the new mayor responded. A Rock Marine Guard of Honor officiated, and Admiral Soane brought the occasion to a close with a brief address. Steps were taken immediately to bury the civilian dead, to care for the orphans, to distribute food and clothing to the distressed, and to establish a civilian hospital and police force. Operations on Other Korean Fronts Dispatches received from the Pusan perimeter revealed that the 8th Army had jumped off according to schedule on the 16th in its joint offensive. Although gains were negligible the first day, this effort was pinning down NKPA troops who might otherwise have reinforced the defenders of Kimpo and Seoul. Several other operations had been mounted on both coasts as diversions to keep the enemy guessing as to where the lightning would strike. Kunsan, it may be recalled, had been briefly considered by Ten Corps planners as an alternate amphibious objective. Early in September, this west coast seaport was selected as the chief target of feints during the preparations for the Incheon landing. General Stratemeyer's 5th Air Force bombers initiated strikes on rail and highway communications within a 30-mile radius. That same day, a hit-and-run amphibious raid on Kunsan was planned at Admiral Joy's headquarters in Tokyo. As a result, Colonel Eli sailed with his company on the British frigate White Sand Bay and raided the Kunsan waterfront on the night of 12 September. Three casualties were incurred from enemy machine gun fire. The 7th Fleet added to the deception by singling out Kunsan for carrier airstrikes and naval gunfire bombardments to give the impression of softening up an objective for amphibious assault. Chinampo, the seaport of Pyongyang, also appeared to be threatened when it was bombarded by a British task force. 
On the East Coast, the USS Missouri, just arrived from the United States, poured 16-inch shells into Samchak on 14 September while a Navy helicopter did the spotting. The cruiser Helena and three U.S. destroyers added their metal to the bombardment. D-Day at Incheon was the date of a landing of rock guerrillas behind the NKPA lines at Changsandong, a coastal town about midway between Yongdok and Pohangdong. After the rock merchant marine LST struck submerged rocks and grounded, it was used as an improvised fortress by the guerrillas, who retreated from the NKPA forces when their ammunition ran short. The only two Americans, an Army lieutenant and sergeant, radioed for help, and the cruiser Helena provided naval gunfire for the Navy relief expedition, which took off the survivors. How much these diversions on both Korean coasts may have contributed to a surprise at Incheon is a moot question. It might even be argued that the enemy was not surprised, since an intercepted NKPA radio message warned Pyongyang on 13 September that United Nations vessels were approaching Incheon in planes bombing Walmido. The senders deduced that an amphibious landing was forthcoming and assured NKPA headquarters that defensive units were being stationed where they would repulse the UN forces. This would make it appear doubtful that a surprise had been achieved. But it is the opinion of Admiral Struble that the actual results in the Incheon Seoul area clearly indicate surprise. While the message was apparently sent and was a good report, there is no evidence that the enemy headquarters accepted the report. It is possible that a later report that the enemy bombarding ships were retreating from Incheon may have confused the issue. In any event, only a short time was available to take advantage of strong defensive positions and certainly not enough time to mine the harbor. An excellent analysis of the outcome is to be found in Admiral Doyle's official report. After paying tribute to the pre-D-Day bombardments by the cruisers and destroyers, plus the airstrikes by planes of TF-77 and TG-90.5, he concluded that the assault itself was successful only through the perfect teamwork that existed between the participating naval and marine elements. The successful accomplishment of the assault on Incheon demanded that an incredible number of individual and coordinated tasks be formed precisely as planned. Only the United States Marines through their many years of specialized training in amphibious warfare, in conjunction with the Navy, had the requisite know-how to formulate the plans within the limited time available and execute those plans flawlessly without additional training or rehearsal. Landing of RCT-7 in Japan Dispatches were received on D-plus-2 at the new Division CP to the effect that the 7th Marines was preparing to embark that day for Kobe and land at Incheon on 21 September. The 3rd Battalion of this regiment, it may be recalled, had originally been a unit on the 6th Marines on FMF land duty with the 6th Fleet in the Mediterranean. Upon being ordered to the Far East, the unit sailed from Crete to Japan by way of the Suez Canal and Indian Ocean. Lieutenant Colonel Dowsett, the battalion commander, did not know throughout the voyage what specific mission awaited his men. They later met at Kobe their new regimental commander, Colonel Litzenberg, who had flown to Japan ahead of the other two battalions sailing from San Diego. He informed Dowsett that his battalion was now part of the 7th Marines and named him executive officer of the regiment. 
Major Maurice E. Roach succeeded to the command of the newly designated 3-7. A formidable task awaited the 7th Marines in Japan. The officers of the staff, not having served with the division before, were unfamiliar with references and terms and directives dealing with the Inchon landing. Problems of integrating the regiment into the operations of the division were solved only by intensive application. A reshuffling of the regiment had to be accomplished, meanwhile, before embarking for Inchon. The purpose was to spread the hundreds of reservists throughout the three battalions instead of having them concentrated in several companies. It took some remarkable adjustments to get the regiment ready for embarkation from Kobe only 17 days after sailing from San Diego. But it meant that the 7th Marines would get into the fight at least a week sooner than division planners had anticipated. Destruction of NKPA Tank Column The amphibious assault phase was left behind on D plus 2 when the 1st and 5th Marines jumped off from the western outskirts of ASCOM City to initiate their drive inland. With the exploitation phase coming next, command relationships would be as follows Sink Fee, Overall Command of CG 10 Corps, CG 10 Corps, Command of CG 1st Marine Division. CG 1st Marine Division, Command of 1st Marine Division, and 7th Infantry Division. The night of 16 to 17 September had been quiet all along the division front. It was so quiet, in fact, that the troops of 2-5 paid no particular heed to a truck which drove through their lines on the Inchon Seoul Highway about midnight. Not until the vehicle had penetrated a few hundred yards into Marine territory was it stopped by curious tank crews of Able Tank's 1st Platoon whose M26s were deployed across the road in deep anti-mechanized defense. The startled occupants of the stray truck turned out to be an NKPA officer and four enlisted men, but they were no more surprised than the Marines who stepped out of the darkness and took them prisoner. Apparently, neither the tank crews nor anybody else in the area attached any special importance to the strange truck incident. In a few hours, however, an epic of smoke, flame, and twisted steel would attest to the significance of this scrap of evidence. The fact of the matter was that the Red Leaders in Seoul did not know the exact location of the 1st Marine Division. It would be recalled that Dog Company of 2-5 occupied a hill on the west side of the highway as the attack on D-plus-1 ground to a halt. About 200 yards beyond the company front was a large knoll that nosed into the center of Ascom City. Observing that the highway turned sharply to the east and passed through a cut at the base of the knoll, Lieutenant H.J. Smith decided to outpost the natural roadblock in strength. At dusk, therefore, he dispatched the 2nd Platoon under 2nd Lieutenant Lee R. Howard to man the advance position along with machine gun and rocket launcher attachments. As the first rays of dawn creased the sky on 17 September, Howard and his troops were entrenched in a compact perimeter atop the knoll. Several hundred yards to the rear, the first platoon of A-tanks was augmented in its blocking position by 3.5-inch rocket launchers of 2.5 and the 75mm recoilless rifles of the 5th Marines. Just across the road from this formidable array were more 75s and 3.5s of the 1st Marines, and placed with Fox Company on 2-1 on Hill 186. Records of the 5th Marines described this bristling gauntlet as 
a temporary defensive position in depth. It was more like a giant torpedo. Sometime before daybreak, a North Korean column formed on the Incheon-Seoul Highway a few miles east of Ascom City. In the van were six sleek T-34s of the 42nd NKPA Mechanized Regiment. Perched atop the tanks and strung out for about 100 yards were 200 Red Infantrymen, comprising a mixed representation of the 18th NKPA Division in Seoul. The enemy force was on its way to block the advance of the 1st Marine Division along the highway. It was obvious that the Communist soldiers had little or no knowledge of the situation ahead. For as they neared Ascom City at the crack of dawn, some were still sitting comfortably on the tanks and eating breakfast. Others laughed and jabbered as they trailed along the road. Lieutenant Howard saw them approaching his dog company outpost on the knoll. He reported to Smith, who passed the word to Royce at 25CP, first one tank, then three, and finally six. Royce took the information with the proverbial grain of salt, supposing it to be a delusion of youth and inexperience. Just as quickly as that impression formed in his mind, it was shattered by the first reverberations of the battle. The attitude of the enemy soldiers as they neared his outpost convinced Howard that they were unaware of the proximity of marine lines. He let the head of the column slip by on the road below, therefore, until the tanks began around the bend leading to Dog Company's MLR. Then the platoon leader shouted the order, and his men opened up with machine guns, rifles, and bars. The Red Infantry went down under the hail of lead like wheat under the sickle. Soldiers on the tanks were knocked to the road, where many were ground under as the big vehicles lurched and roared crazily in reaction to the surprise. Corporal Oki J. Douglas moved partway down the knoll and closed on the lead T-34 with his 2.36-inch rocket launcher. A few well-placed rounds, fired calmly at a range of 75 yards, killed the armored vehicle on the spot. Continuing the single-handed assault, Douglas damaged tank number two just as the main marine position exploded into action. Under attack by the outpost, the cripple and the four unharmed T-34s had continued around the road bend, some of them spilling off the curve in an attempt to deploy in the adjacent rice paddy. All five were taken under fire by 1st Lieutenant William D. Pomeroy's M-26s, about 600 yards away. Within five minutes, the Marine 90mm guns threw 45 rounds of AP at the enemy armor. Recoilless rifles of 2nd Lieutenant Charles M. Jones's platoon, 5th Marines AT Company, added their hot metal at a range of 500 yards, and the 75s with the 1st Marines across the road also erupted. Simultaneously, 2nd Lieutenant James E. Harrell ordered the 3.5-inch rocket launchers of 2.5's assault platoon into action. The T-34s didn't have a chance. All of them exploded under the heavy fusillade, and when the smoke cleared, they were heaps of burning wreckage. Scattered around the dead tanks and along the road were the bodies of 200 Red Infantrymen. So rapid and complete was the enemy's destruction that only one Marine casualty, slightly wounded, resulted from the fight. It was only natural that conflicting claims would arise among the participants in the short, violent clash. To Pomeroy's tank crews, 
It appeared that the M26s accounted for the five T-34s with little or no assistance from the infantry arms. This was a reasonable conclusion on their part, owing to the limited visibility from the buttoned vehicles and the fact that their 90mm guns unquestionably wrought the greatest destruction on the NKPA machines. Since so many weapons were firing simultaneously from various other positions, however, and since the T-34s were wrecked so completely, kills and partial kills were also claimed by the recoilless rifles of both regiments. Moreover, the 3.5-inch rocket gunners of 2.5 and 2.1 believe that some of their rounds found the mark in the midst of the Fuhrer. It is known, for instance, that Private First Class Walter C. Monaghan, Jr., rocket man in the assault squad of Fox Company, 1st Marines, closed on the enemy vehicles after they had rounded the bend and fired his weapon at point-blank ranges. General MacArthur Visits the Front the acrid odor of high explosives still lingered in the fresh morning air as a column of jeeps came slowly around the bend from the rear. General MacArthur was making his first visit to the front. With him and Admiral Struble were Generals Almond, Shepard, Smith, Ruffner, Hodes, Wright, and a group of ten corps staff officers. Several jeeps filled with newspaper correspondents and photographers followed close behind the military cortege. Grimy Marines of RCT-5, their eyes dazzled by the glitter of starry insignia, gazed in wonder at this sudden revelation of the pomp and circumstance of war. The generals and admirals in their turn were equally impressed by the destruction these Marines had wrought, the warm corpses beside the road, the blazing heaps of twisted metal that had been T-34 tanks only a few minutes before. The Marine driver parked the leading jeep on a culvert and General MacArthur leaped down to survey the spectacle. Instantly, he was surrounded by cameramen snapping pictures which would soon appear on stateside front pages. All America was rejoicing at the turning tide in Korea after the humiliating weeks of delaying operations. Early that morning, Sink Fee had been met by General Smith at Yellow Beach and welcomed to the 1st Marine Division CP a Quonset hut with a dirt floor. There the commander-in-chief was briefed by the Division G-2 and G-3 on the military situation. The second stop was at the 1st Marine CP. Sink Fee informed Colonel Puller and Admiral Sohn that he was awarding each of them a silver star. Reaching into the pocket of his leather jacket, he discovered that he had no medals with him. Make a note of that, he enjoined an aide as the correspondents busily scribbled on their pads. Next, the route of the procession led to the zone of RCT-5 in the scene of the Marine tank ambush. It was not exactly a happy occasion for General Smith, who felt a heavy responsibility for the lives and welfare of the 1st Marine Division's distinguished guests. Not only was the commander-in-chief indifferent to danger, but the Marine General had similar cause to worry about others making the tour of inspection. For instance, there was Frank Lowe, a 66-year-old retired National Guard Major General visiting Korea as President Truman's personal observer. Astonishingly hardy for his age, this admirer of the Marines took personal risks which gave concern to Smith. Another source of anxiety was the attractive correspondent of a New York newspaper, Marguerite Higgins, who had hit Red Beach on the heels of the landing force. 
Both she and Lil were on hand when the column of jeeps stopped to survey the results of the tank ambush. Smith scanned the landscape with apprehension, devoutly hoping that some hidden foeman would not choose this moment to obliterate several visiting generals with a well-aimed mortar round. It was with relief that he departed with MacArthur for a visit to the CP of the 5th Marines. And it was just as well that he did not learn until later what happened shortly after his departure. First Lieutenant George C. McNaughton's platoon, hearing a suspicious noise, had flushed seven armed NKPA soldiers out of a culvert, the culvert of which General MacArthur's jeep had been parked. A few rifle shots persuaded them to surrender as the only survivors of the enemy expedition. The caravan of distinguished visitors proceeded, meanwhile, to the CP of the 5th Marines, raising a cloud of dust that could be seen for miles. Lieutenant Colonel Murray and General Craig were next to be awarded silver stars by General MacArthur. His tour of inspection ended with a look at the Marine stockade in Incheon, where 671 NKPA prisoners were held, and a survey of the defenses of Walmido. When the Marine General returned to his CP, he found Major General James M. Gavin, U.S. Army, waiting to make a detailed study of Marine close air support and the weapons employed. The day ended with Ruffner and Hodes conferring with Smith on plans for the employment of the 32nd Infantry, due to land the next day as the first unit of the 7th Infantry Division to go ashore. Plans were made for the Army unit to assume responsibility at 1200 on 19 September for the zone of action on RCT-1's right flank. End of Chapter 8, Part 1, read by Aaron Bennett.